Welcome to episode 160 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. My life is kind of in chaos right now. Um, I just finished moving to a new apartment and I don't even have my podcasting space set up yet. I've been unpacking everything else that I need to live. But that doesn't stop things. The business of presenting podcasts goes on. And so there is another episode this week. I will get to that in a second. And did you guys know that on January the 5th, Stageworthy will be three years old? That's right, three years old. Sometime this summer, we will hit the 200th episode. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that Stageworthy is three years old as of January 5th. Um, there's a whole lot to go back on. You can look back on some great episodes uh, in the past, and uh, and I'm super proud of all of them. But, you know, uh, I always want to hear from people who, who, who enjoy the podcast. So if you feel like dropping me a line, remember, you can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod. And you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you want to drop me a line, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby. And my website is PhilRickaby.com. And if you like the podcast, celebrate the three years of Stageworthy by telling a friend about it. Um, some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because somebody I knew told me about them. Um, and it's a great way to spread the love about podcasts that you enjoy. And while you're telling people about it or if you want to help other people find it, uh, make sure that you leave a comment and a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Music, or wherever you get your podcasts, because those ratings and comments do, in fact, help new people find the show. This week, my guest is Thomas Goff, who appears in Three Ships Collective and Soup Can Theatre's A Christmas Carol on at the Campbell House Museum from December 12th to the 22nd in Toronto. So you're working on uh, uh, Soup Can Theater's uh, 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 Christmas, Christmas Carol. Carol. Yeah, you're playing. You're playing Ebenezer Scrooge. I am being Scrooge. Yeah. So, um, what did you grow up on? On uh, on the Alistair Sim? Did you? Did you? Is it one of your? Do you have a tradition around the Christmas Carol? Or? No. No, really. No. Okay. I never read a Christmas Carol until I was well into adulthood. Hmm. Um, I'd read a lot of other Dickens before that, hmm. and I have never, to this day, seen a single acted version of it. Never seen any of the films. Nothing. Well. You know what? In a way, that's that that's perfect because so many of those performances are. Um, I. It's hard not to want to emulate them. Yeah, yeah. This is um, this this is a, a really interesting thing, and I, I was actually answering some questions about this for for somebody else, and the question of iconic performances came yeah. up. I had one strange experience a number of years ago when I did a production of a Shakespeare play with a director who was terrific in a lot of ways but he'd never been an actor mm. and he okay. kept she kept wanting us to watch clips of, of you know, oh no 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 and I <clears throat> yeah of course no no the last no. thing I want is to know what I have to live up to or what I have to try to get out of my head no absolutely yeah um and, you know, and obviously, if I go wildly wrong, that's what I got a director for. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, 
No, it's 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 funny to be, be to be tired, tied to that 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 kind of thing, um, but it does put you in a in a unique position, not having been infected by mm-hmm. um, iconic performances, yeah. of which there have been <clears throat> many. many. Yeah, um, but intro- <sighs> I'm I'm sort of curious how you avoided it. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like a, a, as as you get closer and closer to. Uh, uh, the Christmas season, it, it becomes almost impossible almost to avoid. avoid. Well, that's, that's yeah. Um, I don't watch much television. Okay. Uh, I haven't watched television for a long time. Mm. I, I didn't grow up with television. Mm. And I don't tend to go to movies a lot either. Okay. Um, and I, I, I think I miss a lot of things that a lot of people mm. know about. Yeah. Sure. What was, uh, I mean... Now you're th- this this production that Soup Can is doing is 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 a little bit unique because it's not in a a theater space it's a, a Campbell House. Yeah. Um, what makes that the presentation of it in such an intimate space more of a challenge? Well, ah, uh, gee, I don't know that it is more of a challenge mm-hmm. for me as an actor. For the producers, it, well, there's an obvious challenge for the producers, which is they can't sell a lot of tickets because the space is. Oh, sure, yeah. I think we're having ma- maximum audience of 28 per right, okay. show. Right, yeah. um, For me as an actor, it's it actually solves some problems. Mm. I remember the first time I did it, I've done two other shows in the Campbell House, and the first time I did one, it was with the Single Thread Theatre, and it was a play about the history of Campbell House. Right. And I was so in Campbell. And I discovered that I could do all kinds of vocal things, achieve all kinds of vocal subtleties and so on, because I was in such a small space. Sure, yeah. And I also found uh, in Campbell House and in Spadina House, where I've done a couple of shows, that as a performer it feels much more casual and not casual in the sense of lazy or sloppy mm-hmm. but in the sense of natural um, sure the, yeah some guests are here listening to your conversation but it's yeah. just you know you're sitting in a comfortable chair in a sure. nice room and yeah and i guess because you don't have to worry about projecting it can you don't have to worry about natural. projecting yeah. and i mean it, you do still have to know where you're moving and that sort of mm-hmm. thing but the audience is so close well the audience is I mean literally inside the fourth wall yeah yeah and they can see and they can hear and and I don't find that I'm any more distracted by the audience mm. than I am in a in a theater mm. um, I suppose they're close enough to see and hear everything you do wrong mm-hmm. but you know, you try not to do anything. Well, that's the thing, right? That's the thing, yeah. Um, what? There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of historical references in a Christmas Carol. There's mm-hmm. things that um, are mentioned so casually that would have been obvious to a Victorian audience mm-hmm. um, that are very obscure to us, and we only recognize them by by virtue of the fact that some of us have have, have seen the movie or whatever yeah. and heard the references every year but they don't they don't register and well there's a lot of that in Shakespeare sure, sure. yeah um, there's there's a there's a lot of about the the poor and the treatment of the mm-hmm. poor and certain laws that were in effect at the time and yeah. things like that 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 were dear to Dickens heart but are are removed from us did you, was there a lot of uh, research that went into preparing to do this? Um, 
on my part, no, on the part of, of Justin Haig, who has re, you know, has extracted this version of the story from the book. I, yes, definitely. Mm. He's, he's clearly done his homework. We've been talking about things like the poor houses and mm. the poor house system and the workhouse system, yeah. um, which was all, you know, we, we look back at that now and we think, oh, what a horrible, barbaric way to deal with this kind of problem. And yet we don't seem to be handling it much better no. now. No, of course not. No. <clears throat> um, so, I don't think there's anything in this script that will confuse hmm. anybody who's reasonably aware. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I suspect that a lot of people who will come to see this are people who are familiar with the story oh, and yeah. love it and want yeah, to see yeah. a new version of it. So I don't, I don't think any... Well, as you say, it's difficult to get away from the story, mm -hmm. so I don't imagine a lot of people will be walking into a vacuum. No, um, no. And... We don't customarily have uh, talkbacks with audiences after shows like this, but mm. I suppose we could always find an opportunity to <laughs> let people ask questions. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, what is the what what's what sort of exciting you most about about this particular story and this particular role? Well, the big thing for me always is to have to do something I've never done before, mm. and I've never played a character who did such a complete about face mm -hmm. because he becomes well he becomes in, in some fundamental ways a very different person obviously mm -hmm. uh, one of the interesting things about this and Justin is giving a lot of help with his script is making the transition from Scrooge at the beginning, Scrooge at the end. And it's easy to see Scrooge as a as a one-dimensional character. Yes. Yeah. Who suddenly turns into a totally different one-dimensional character. Yes. Yeah. But I don't I mean that's melodrama. I I, I don't want to do yeah. that. So the the what's really interesting to me, and we're really we're just starting, we've mm -hmm. rehearsed yeah. for a few days, is finding the moments at which there's a little bit of a hint that maybe Scrooge is cracking. Mm. Um, but not giving it away completely too early. You know, sure. So it's it's a very very clear arc of character development, which which makes it easier in some ways. You know exactly where you have to get to. Yeah. But because the change is so huge and the space of time yes. that it has to happen in is so small, it's yeah. You know, how do I how do I do it without being too obvious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I make sure that the audience gets the points? You know, that, that the audience can go back at the end and say, oh, that's why he had that look on his face, mm -hmm. you know, 15 pages ago. Yeah. Um, it's super, I mean, it's super interesting because I think a lot of people, you can see Scrooge as as a one-dimensional character yeah. that turns into one-dimensional character, but he's, um, he's, he's very human. He's sure. just reacted to his own life in a particular way. And and again in Justin's script, I don't remember the book at all. Mm -hmm. It's a long time since I read it. But in Justin's script, it's very clear if you think about it, why he's become the person he, oh, sure, he yeah. was. And uh, what what I'm hoping really is that people will see Scrooge as someone who not as someone who suddenly becomes a different person, but as someone who wakes up yes, and, yeah. and rediscovers stuff that always used to be there. Sure. Because, you know, I mean, in the story, he, he in the book, he's, and in, the, in many of the movies, he's, uh, he was once happy and, yeah. and, and celebrated the holidays and, yeah. you know, wasn't the closed off person that he is. And, and we and, have, yeah. um, 
we have Scrooge at three different ages here. We have a very small Scrooge, mm-hmm. and we have the young man who has a scene with the young woman he's going to marry, mm-hmm. and so on. We, we we see why that doesn't happen. Yeah, um, it's. It's always interesting, to some extent, I suppose, futile when you're dealing with real human beings, speculating about what forms character. And sure. I think some of Scrooge is pretty obvious, but I, as, as an actor, I have to find some stuff uh, in the character that isn't necessarily in the script, but possibly nobody but me knows anything about mm-hmm. it at all. Yeah, no, you, know, yeah. you have to find reasons. Um, for for doing what what the character does, they may not sure. be explained by the author. Yeah, well, that's always one of the one of the interesting things about about three dimensional people is we don't have to explain and and we don't have to explain everything. Yeah, you know, it doesn't it doesn't we're, we 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 love to explain and 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 make sure that everything is understood. And I think leaving things open for interpretation by an audience is a, is a oh, a real a real like you're trusting your audience when you do that. Absolutely, and and the same thing goes, of course, for the for the relationship between the director and the actor. I, yeah. mean, I I love working with Sarah because, like all the good directors I've ever worked with, she trusts the actors. She doesn't say this is just the way you have to do that. Yeah, she she trusts us to make our own decisions, and she she always wants to hear what we're thinking. Mm-hmm. She wants to discuss things. So it really is a collaborative effort but, yeah. but there's even so there are things that, that you don't tell the director oh sure where you're, where, how you're getting to where you're going yeah you don't always have to tell them no you don't always have to tell them if it's working they probably, you don't have to you don't have to justify anything yeah and sometimes you don't know yourself of course yeah um, I remember years ago I did a production of of um, this was Hamlet at, mm. at Hart House I did I did Polonius and Hamlet just a few years ago, but this was the same play like eight years earlier than that. And I used a strange kind of voice for Polonius. Mm-hmm. And one of the kids at a high school talked back, said, well, where did that voice come from? And I said, I have no idea. I was, <laughs> was running lines in the bath one day or something, and I suddenly started talking in that voice. And somehow after that, that had to be the voice, mm. but I don't have no idea where I, mm. why it came from. Yeah. Um, so sometimes you you, you don't know yourself, uh, mm. and that's that that's a a good thing to some degree. Yeah. Um, I I work with actors sometimes who are much more cerebral than I am. The kind of actor who can build a character mm. brick by brick and know exactly what he's doing, exactly where he's going. I'm not like that at all. I yeah. can't, can't do that. And to some extent, I'm very glad mm-hmm. that that the ideas come from from who knows where. But it can be frustrating. Sure, I have always found myself that that you know there's a there's a certain amount for me. You can be cerebral up to a point, and then you have to just go with the gut. You have to trust. And I think yeah. all, I think all actors have to do that to some degree. Mm. But I, I'm a really, really intuitive performer, partly because I have no training. I mean, yeah. everything I've learned about acting, I've learned by doing it mm-hmm. with good people from whom I absorb stuff. Yeah. But I'm a very intuitive person anyway. And yeah. I, it seems to work. Mm-hmm. But again, it's why I want to have a good director who can say, sure. okay, you know, mm, sorry, not this time. Um, I'm very much a detail person. And I don't tend to see 
the big picture, which is another reason. You know, I may, my, I may play a scene in a particular way and the director may say, you know, that's absolutely wonderful, but it's totally inconsistent with everything else you've done. Mm, so let's, yeah. you know, let's think about that. But I mean, in, in a way, that's, I mean, that's kind of your job is just to look at what's in front of you right now. Yeah. And that's why you have a director so that they can yeah. help keep things consistent. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the way I look at it. Thomas, what's your, what's your theater origin story? How did you start doing this? Well, uh, I was first on stage when I was four or five. I think as the innkeeper in the kindergarten Christmas project. Probably. Right. But I can. I was acting before that. I can remember as a small child playing little scenes, um, and I had a sort of strange way of doing it. I I would imagine myself as some character, mm-hmm. and I would start a conversation with somebody or ask a question or something, and it was always in the hope of getting them to react in some particular way. Mm. But my goal was always. To, 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 to make a scene work out the way I wanted it to without anybody knowing mm. that I was playing a scene and being a different character. Right. It sounds kind of sociopathic, I guess, really, but it wasn't at the time. It was just, it was a fun way of playing with words and telling stories and, yeah. and so on. I, th- I think I was born acting, basically. Um, yeah. I, I've always wanted to do it. It's mm. always, when I was a young man, I wanted to be a professional. Mm-hmm. But my health was bad, mm-hmm. and I just I didn't have the the physical plan. I wasn't confident that I had enough mm-hmm. talent. Mm-hmm. I became a teacher, and I spent twenty years teaching, and I loved it. And mm-hmm. it was, for a while, it seemed to be enough. And, yeah. You know, so. what, what subjects did you teach? I taught history, uh, English, philosophy, and law. Mm-hmm. I taught at a private school where they okay. allowed you to teach yeah. the stuff you actually knew instead mm-hmm. of saying you have to teach six sections of grade nine math. You know? Yeah. And I loved it. I, there were a lot of bright kids mm. and really stimulating people. And, and uh, But after a while, I I started... I, I think I was about 15 years without ever doing a show mm. because I was so absorbed in teaching. I really loved it. And then uh, I started again pretty much by accident. And after a few years, I thought, how the hell did I ever live without doing this? Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. that's when I decided to quit teaching and, and act full-time. It's funny. It's funny how... how you can sort of close yourself off to something like that and then sort of like open open the faucet just a little bit yeah. and it's like you realize how much you needed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, well, it's a, a, the, the way it happened was kind of strange. Um, I hadn't done any acting for quite a while and a cousin of mine introduced me to the Arts and Letters Club in mm. Toronto. I don't know if you've ever been yeah. aware. Absolutely wonderful place. And one of the things we do there every year is a, a sketch comedy show, which mm-hmm. is written and performed entirely by members. So I got into that in my first year. And after three or four years, I was in the club, and somebody came up to me and said, aren't you supposed to be at that rehearsal? Or at that audition, rather? And I said, what audition? And apparently somebody, an American television director, had come to Toronto mm-hmm. and he was going to do the world's premiere of a rap musical version of A Clockwork Orange. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, maybe okay with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he was going to do it at the Hart House Theatre, okay. where I had done a couple of shows as an undergraduate, but they closed the Hart House Theatre for 25 years at 
mm. who knows why. Yeah. And so this audition was happening in the room three feet behind my shoulder mm-hmm. as we spoke. So I went in and said, what's all this about? And I wound up being cast as the as this chaplain mm-hmm. in this show. And that would have been the end of that, um, except that somebody introduced me to Jeremy Hutton, who okay. had done a lot of stuff there. And I, I found him fascinating right from the first. Mm-hmm. And I knew that he was going to be the director of the next show, which would be Othello. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, I don't have time to do any more of this. I'm not going to. And at the absolute last minute, I decided to go and audition for him. And if he did, if I'd been 30 seconds later, it would have been too late. It was mm-hmm. the last evening of his auditions. Mm-hmm. They were just packing up. And uh, so I said, well, yeah, I sort of didn't want to read for you. And he opened up again and gave me this wonderful speech in Othello, um, Iago's speech, put money in thy purse. Yeah. And he gave it to me, and I read it absolutely cold. I'm quite a good cold reader. And I finished, and he said, you know, you made exactly the same mistake I always make when I read that passage. There was one single-syllable word, which I mm-hmm. read as something else. Yeah. And anyway, he wound up casting me as Brabantio, and, which is a very small role. And I got in to a rehearsal with this and I thought what the hell am I doing here I'm way out of my depth these guys know so much more than I yeah. do but I managed to get through it because Jeremy is a very demanding director but he's a very patient director mm-hmm. and so I got through it thinking you know he actually got me to do some stuff I would never have believed I could do mm-hmm. and so I auditioned for him again the next year and after three or four years I started thinking I just I, I have to keep doing this yeah yeah and um the Jeremy and the Hart House Theatre particularly are what made me hmm. want to keep doing it. And then I met some people there who got me connected in one way or another with other theatre companies, mm-hmm. like the Single Thread, which is a wonderful outfit that started as a student group at Queen's, and the Soup Can and Brandon Crone's Safe Word and so on. They're all, you know, the relationships are all terribly incestuous. They're all mm-hmm. lending talent to each sure, other. Yeah. So you get involved with one and you get involved with others. And, and so I started, started learning how much talent there is in the independent theatre, mm-hmm. how many different places there are, how many different groups there are to work with. But and by this point, I was completely hooked. So, yeah. So, and there's so much interesting work happening oh, in the indie so world much, as well. Yeah. So much. And I, I sometimes wish I could persuade. I mean, the big established companies are doing great stuff. It's yeah. And, and so on. But I, I do wish some people would, you know, instead of, instead of spending 140 bucks to go and see The Sound of Music again, would go and see six or seven indie shows instead and, and sure. find out all the, the... There's a lot of stuff happening in the independent theater that is not at all comfortable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, which is, yeah, there's a reason for that. But it's also really exciting. Yeah, very, very exciting. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's, yeah, there's so much, there's so much interesting work and it's work that in some cases some of the established theaters wouldn't do because they have concerns about their subscriber base or they don't want to offend this group or that group and the indie the indie groups can can really push the push uh uh the envelope and if they don't make a profit on a show i mean they don't expect to and they don't most of them have a, a bricks and mortar they have to look after yeah 
practically everybody I know in the indie theater is actually making a living doing something else. Oh, yeah, which absolutely. Which I wish didn't have to be true. But, so there's a sense yeah, that they can afford to take risks because they're going to be broke anyway. <laughs> sure, well, that, that's the thing, is, is if, if, if your goal is, has been, well, if we can come close to, to breaking even... Um, then we can call this a success. Yeah, you're not yeah. worried about you're not reporting to a board of directors yeah. or things like that about about your losses and worrying about a profit. And every once in a while, I think we snag a few more mm-hmm. interested people. Yeah. Um, so, and I find that the the cross pollination is really exciting too. Mm. Um, I don't know if you know of. A, a, monthly event called Sing for Your Supper. I'm, I'm aware. Of, I've oh, been yeah. a few times. I've yeah. been a few times, yeah. Absolutely wonderful. I love. I haven't been there for more than a year because I've been so busy every single mm-hmm. damn month, but I love it. And and one of the reasons it's such a wonderful event is that you get people from all over the place, Yeah. Um, not just actors, directors, writers, and so on, coming together and just saying, okay, what do you got? What that yeah. I can be interested in now? Yeah. And there's, there's, there's always somebody there you've never met before. Yeah who keeps coming back. Um, the first one of those, the first or second of those I went to, which would have been more than 10 years ago now, they were they were meeting probably illegally in an abandoned building downtown <laughs> on Temperance Street, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Long, replaced by a condominium tower. And I read something, and a young guy came up to me afterwards and said, um, Hi, I'm a filmmaker. Can I put your name on my list of actors to get in touch with when I need actors? Hmm. And I said, sure. A young Toronto director named Christian DeStallo. And a couple of years later, I made a little film with him. A story that he had conceived himself and sensibly got somebody else to write for <laughs> yep. him. Because, yep. And it wound up at the Cannes Festival nice. in, in 2015. Nice. So... Um, the, the the connections are extraordinary, yeah. and you you know you meet somebody, and then three years later you think, wow, what did that lead to? Well, it's there's there's all over the place. Absolutely, there's a, there's a lot of that kind of thing. Is is if you think about um, people who have sort of come from indie, people like Cat Sandler and yes. Theater Brouhaha, when they're sort of doing stuff, they're doing stuff like out of pocket, renting a theater and 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 doing their own stuff and. Then you know she's she's uh, produced by Tarragon yeah. and Factory in the same year, yeah. things like that. So there, like indie, ha- like there's a there's a path from indie to a little more mainstream. Yeah. But I think people who start indie, they always I think keep a foot I in indie. Think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Her the last show, the Hard House season this year is is a play of hers. Mm-hmm. Well, they're just auditioning for it right now. It's called uh, Retreat. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Unfortunately, there is no role in it for me because I'd love to do some of her stuff. I had a chance actually to read, um, I mean, to read in public uh, a, a play that she had just written a number of years ago, the final day of the Fringe Festival. Uh-huh. There was going to be a reading. I think I don't know. She'd won the Fringe Writing Contest or something. But the, the twenty-four hour playwriting yeah. contest. Yeah. But there was going to be a reading uh, late on the Sunday evening, and somebody called me and said, "Would you like to be one of the readers?" Yeah. I had. A rehearsal at ten o'clock the next morning in Kingston mm-hmm. oh. for the for the new then new Kingston yeah. Theater Festival, the Cake and Push Festival. So I had to say no, and I've regretted it ever since. Mm. So because I had to get there and meet my yeah. parents and all that, that was probably that was probably late. Uh, that was probably late night 
which was then produced by Moses Neimer at the at the, oh, really? the Zuma Theater a few years later. Yeah. Um, in terms of in terms of you, you mentioned how you sort of like you were born an actor. You, know, you were always doing that sort of thing. For a lot of people, we act and imagine when we're when we're younger. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're children. Yeah. Um, and it's something that we grow out of, or it's grown out of us. Yeah. I think that that yeah. that, that, that it, it can be pushed to the sidelines. Yeah. You know, you're too old for that. Yeah. Um, but actors sort of hold on to that for a while. I and I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know what's different. Um, I retrospectively, I can probably imagine some of the things that, if they didn't cause me to be an actor, fed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a house full of books. Both yeah. my parents were highly literate and very much concerned that their children should know and love the language. Um, one of the reasons I don't watch television is that my mother did this wonderful thing that you couldn't possibly do now. She refused to have a television until her youngest child was an addicted reader. Mm-hmm. And it worked. Yeah. And we all, I have four siblings, and we all read, except sometimes we stop reading and talk. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I was encouraged to read anything I wanted to read. Uh, our parents read to us when we were tiny children. Mm. We were all fluent readers before we went to school. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, some people are just more conscious of the importance of stories sure. than other people are. We, we, all, we tell each other stories all the time. We sure. can't communicate without telling stories. Yeah. And I guess I, because of the way I grew up, I've just always been really, really aware of that. And... I've always been uh, a talker as well. Mm. My father could make up completely ridiculous stories and tell them in such a way that you never even considered that they might not be true. Mm. He could say extraordinary things with a totally straight face and say, well, he's so earnest about that. And then you (laughs) discover that it was complete nonsense. and in a strange, unconscious way, I have a, I, I'm very analytical about language and argument. Mm. I could never do math beyond arithmetic and a certain amount of geometry, but if, if, but if you want me to figure something out rationally, if you give it to me in words, mm-hmm. I, can, I can do it and have fun doing mm-hmm. it. It's one of the reasons that I had so much fun teaching. Yeah. Uh, making people understand stuff was always uh, uh, very enjoyable mm-hmm. to me. Um, but where where fundamentally the desire to perform comes from, I just don't know. Hmm. But I know it's it's you know it's it's it's, yeah. it's absolutely essential to me. I do think that there's something that happens when a child is read to um, from a young age. If you see, if you see and hear somebody performing a book, which is if you if you read if you read well, yeah, you're performing yeah, the book. Absolutely. Once you get past the the stage where there's a picture book, and now you're telling the story, there's there's something about that that, that I think gets in deep, yeah. and that now, like in my head, I'm performing the story in yeah. my own way, you know. Yeah, I think that yeah. that that being a being read to becoming a reader. Is sort of a, a requisite for 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 some yeah. some aspect of it. I I think so. I, I don't really understand quite how. Mm. Um, 
I, so this is making me wish I could remember a little more about the way it developed. Mm. Um. There is an interesting... Recently, I, I, I heard uh, somebody on, 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 a, on a radio show, I heard on the podcast version, uh, they were talking about how um, science still doesn't understand what happens in our brain when we read. Because we're trans, we translate words into images in a way that we, is not fully understood. All the things that are happening when we read, because think ways that we see ourselves as the different characters, the way that we see the words on the page is not fully understood. Yeah. What the mechanic of that is, which is a fascinating it is fascinating. thing. Um, and I know absolutely. I I find myself. A character in the story mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, uh, at least if the book is any good. I, I and I do that. I read a lot of history. I do that with history as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's um, and I suppose actually, if you're reading a history or biography, which I also read a lot of, you're you're putting yourself into a picture that doesn't actually exist. You're imagining situations that weren't that aren't in fact as they were. Mm-hmm. And so on. And with fiction, that doesn't matter so much. Mm-hmm. It's easy to mislead yourself about something that way. But yeah, I I have had lots of conversations with fictional characters. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine, the, I, I'm sure you're aware of the great, uh, vast by this point, world of fan fiction. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my boy, I bet that covers a whole <laughs> But I can remember doing that when I was a kid, I'm sure, you know, yeah. wanting to know. And I think it, it it's partly got to be a hunger. Um, I can remember, I was a rather solitary child in some ways, even though there were lots of people around me. And I can remember reading stories and saying, I wish I knew that person. Mm. And then I would you know, mm-hmm. make up adventures for us to have yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think early immersion in stories gets you telling stories. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. When you were teaching, when you were teaching history, what, was there a particular uh, 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 aspect of history, period of history that you most enjoyed telling people or teaching? Um, well, my own academic background, such as it is, is in in modern European history, so that was the thing that was easiest for me. Um, but we had a, a, a sort of movement among the students at about halfway through my time there, uh, people saying, please, 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 could we learn some classical history? Oh, okay. So for, then we started teaching some Greek and Roman stuff. Hmm. Um, and then I taught for a number of years uh, sort of Western intellectual history course, which was a lot of fun. And it was eventually taken over by one of my colleagues who actually had a much better background for it than I had. Um, I think the thing I was most interested in, actually, was the philosophy. Hmm. Uh, so we talked a lot about politics and intellectual developments. and I. I did a lot of, of stuff on 20th century European history, so I read a lot about the, the backgrounds to the wars and how all that stuff developed. Yeah. So the military history itself was never an interest of mine. And after a few years of teaching, uh, I started teaching philosophy. 
And I found that in some ways that was the most rewarding thing hmm. of all. Hmm. Um, I, and I, I, I found that because I found that it was one of the things to, to, to which kids were most responsive. Hmm. Um, I had... I, I had some kids who were very, very interested in history, very responsive to, to you know, the, the, the changes and the flow of events and so on and so forth. But as a general rule, I think by the time they get to high school, kids have been, have been taught that history's boring. And sometimes it's, you know, it, it's a real, a real chore to get them, mm-hmm. to get them involved in it somehow. Um, I can remember one year teaching the Canadian history course to grade nine students. It was just deadly. I thought, oh, how on earth do we... Not because there isn't a lot of interesting Canadian history, but there was just something wrong with this particular curriculum. It yeah. was just, uh, you know, let's make this all as boring as we possibly can. Um, I, I did find that the best part of teaching history for me was once I got them a bit interested, there would be some really interesting questions. Yeah. And trying to make people understand teenagers tend to have really neatly organized world Mm. in their heads Um, and I found it very satisfying sometimes kind of frightening trying to make them understand that we don't actually have a lot of really simple solutions to big complicated problems and it's all very nice to think you know well the people demanded this and the people achieved that and so well who are these people we're talking about yes yeah, yeah. do you realize that there are 970 different interest groups involved in this and and you've also got you know political leaders who have their own access to grind possibly don't know as much about the situation as they want you to believe mm-hmm. in and getting getting them to realize because once again, I was dealing with a lot of very bright kids, yeah. getting them to understand that a lot of things are way more difficult and frustrating than they than they imagine. It's, you know, in other words, trying to help you grow up a little here. Sure, I found that interesting. But I think the thing I found mo- most rewarding was uh, philosophy, because there's so much opportunity to get them to th- look at their own ideas and say, "Oh, gee." Maybe I need to think a little more deeply about it. Hmm. Um, and I also spent a lot of time in that philosophy course teaching them how to reason in words, the, hmm. the, the logic of rhetoric, the, the reasoning of natural hmm. language. And it was absolutely astounding. I would give a class full of break kids a, a syllogism. You know, everybody in this class is a high school student, you are in this class, therefore you are a high school student. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely basic, simple reasoning. Mm-hmm. Sense. And I would get these fantastic reactions. They would say, you mean, there are actually rules to thinking and, and there are ways of putting pieces of information together which will give you absolute certainty that another piece of information is true. And part of me says, well, what the hell have they been teaching you up to now? <laughs> but part of it says, yeah... And and now we can go on from here. And you can know that you don't have to be constantly frustrated by your inability mm. to come to a reliable conclusion about mm. something. And the bright ones would just grab this, and, and yeah, you know. So, were there others that had difficulty accepting it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, it was a school for bright kids. Almost all our kids went on to university. Almost all of them 
graduated from university, mm -hmm. but there was still a range. Sure. Um, I had one philosophy class which had ten kids in it. Um, four or five of them were you know, pretty typical students of the school, which is to say reasonably bright. A couple of them don't think we're not bright enough to do it, but realized that they, or possibly hadn't yet realized that they weren't really interested in doing it, so right. we didn't get a lot out of them. Um, one extremely bright kid, and then two of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire mm. life, and all in this one little group. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> there were some who had trouble with it. Um, there were some, in, in any, in any, class. Mm -hmm. There are going to be some kids who would say, I'd rather be doing something else. Sure, yeah. This is my least favorite subject, or you're my least favorite teacher, mm -hmm. but I have no way of telling you that. Or, yeah. um, but, but my great good fortune in that place, of course, was that we had parents who were on the whole interested in their kids, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which makes a big, big difference yeah. when you're trying to get something. Yeah. Um, we had a, we had a very good music program. We had a very good visual art program. We could not persuade the, the boss to let us teach drama as a as a curriculum. Is there a particular reason why? I don't know. Mm. I think they they'd set out you know working in a particular way, and they were very successful. We did drama as an extracurricular thing, mm -hmm. but we I do remember at one point going and saying you know there is a credit course that we could be teaching, and we've got people who are qualified to teach it because I wasn't the only actor there. By sure, any, but we just never. However, they have I know in the years since I left, which is eight or nine years ago now, they have been doing more and better stuff in their extracurricular drama. Mm -hmm. program, so maybe that's mm -hmm. all they need. But maybe. Yeah. But I have three or four former students who went on to get into the theater, a couple who've been through the National Theater School. Nice. So yeah. they were obviously getting, you know, something out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I found um, the theater stuff we did and the public speaking we did, we forced our kids to learn something about public speaking. And mm -hmm. Every year, every kid had to make a speech about something or other. Yeah. And we made them do class presentations and stuff like that. And they all hated it. Yeah. But it's amazing what we saw about kids waking up, kids becoming socially much more uh, easy. Mm. And every year we had kids coming back halfway through the first year of university and saying, you know, I hated speech night, but thank you so much because I've got classmates disappearing left and right because they can't get up in front of a class. Mm. And, uh, you know, they're, 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 they won't even start. They're, yeah. they're scared. Yeah. Uh, I had one student, very bright kid, who at a very young age became the <laughs> commander-in-chief, whatever it's called, of mm. a division of one of the big, big banks, okay. like 25 or something. And he came back and said, you know, I, this was really interesting to me. I was one of a thousand candidates. And when they offered me the job, I said, Okay, why did you choose me? And one of the things they said to me was, you were the only person we interviewed who could get up in front of a group of strangers and explain what he was thinking about. Hmm. And I thought, yeah. If I told a class that you know, that's what this can do for you, they'd all say, don't be ridiculous. Of course, of course, yeah. But they come back later and, yeah. And, yeah well, there's certain things that you can't, you can't tell 
a student. Oh, absolutely. Why, yeah. you know, what, how this can serve them down the road. Yeah, absolutely. It's something they have to realize on their own. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a boy who I hadn't realized to be particularly interested in, in an English class. And he came back to school some years later and said, I'm reading my way through all of Shakespeare. Because just something something came back from yeah. our class and said, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, there's, there's got to be something here. Mm -hmm. I, I had a very strange and disappointing passage with a, with a senior teacher once, a, a wonderful person who was fantastic with small children. And at one point I said in the course of a general conversation that I thought we should be teaching younger kids the basics of logic, the basics of, of rhetorical mm -hmm. reasoning. And she said, no, no, at that age they're, they're too young. And I thought, well... A, I don't think that's true, and B, a lot of what I'm doing as a teacher is laying timed charges. Yes, yeah. I don't expect them to understand all this now, but I do expect them to be coming back in their own minds a few years later and say, oh, that's what they were talking about. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I mean, that certainly happened to me throughout my life. Oh, sure, yeah. Now yeah. I know why they were on about that at school. Um, yeah. And, of course, we also had the idea that pushing them a little beyond what they already know mm -hmm. is better than just giving them the same damn thing they've been doing all along. Yeah. yeah. Which is, uh, you know, not, not to go back to the theater or anything, um, is one of the reasons that I love doing this, kind mm -hmm. of, because there's always something new. There's always something that you've never done before, yeah. or had to do before. And... That's you know, sort of what, what keeps me at it. Yeah. I, I can't think... I mean, one of the frustrations of working in the independent theater is you never get to run a show for very long. <laughs> That's very true. Hand, the idea of being cast in, you know, as the detective in the mouse trap and playing the same role for 17 years mm -hmm. no I couldn't possibly sure. do that I do think though that there's something there's something almost sad about the two week three week run you can almost just be heading hitting into a, a momentum and absolutely. then you have to you have to close absolutely and that's I remember the first show I think probably the only show I've ever done I can't now remember what it was where we actually had three or four preview performances mm -hmm. I'd never understood why those were so valuable. Uh, I just closed a show on Saturday, uh, and we had had eight performances. That was it. And we were definitely, you know, the last performance was the best one. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it, I mean, the, if you if you run for even even a month, it you've 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 passed through like the learning, and now you've. Now you really know the show, and now there's a certain amount of, of comfort and play that can happen. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's wonderful when you get to that stage because mm -hmm. everything becomes so much freer. I love working with actors who are prepared, n not actors who want to prank each other, but mm -hmm. actors who are prepared to take risks and accept risks in the middle of the performance. Oh, sure. A little something a little differently. Yeah. Because... One of the great things about that is that it gives you something that is genuinely something you have not experienced before, mm -hmm. so you make a very genuine response to yeah. it. I remember uh, the first time I did a show in the Campbell House, my my grandson was, was played by uh, Brandon Crone, who mm -hmm. was just insanely talented. And 
he and I started, we had one wonderful scene together, and he and I started doing little different things. Mm -hmm. and sometimes it was just a matter of, you know, I would pour a drink and hand it to him and then pour one for myself, and one night I'd do it the other way around, mm -hmm. and, and he would, you know, he'd be resentful. Yeah. I wasn't following the ritual. But it would be the character who was saying, yeah. wait a minute, that's not how it's supposed to go. It wasn't Brandon being thrown off. Yeah. And we'd do little things mm -hmm. to each other, just so that there was always something to react genuinely to. sure i mean i've worked with i've worked with uh, some actors in the past where um the way they do it is the way they do it and it's almost like as soon as you get on stage they press play on that tape recorder yeah and it, it sort of becomes you sort of it's kind of boring yeah. there's nothing new to react there's nothing really to react to yeah instead of just letting it come out the way that it comes out, which allows for a little, even if you're not like changing much, it's just yeah. nuances in the way that you react to people. Absolutely. And you know, I'm sorry, I, I, I know that the, the basic job is to do the same thing every night, but you can't possibly do it exactly the same way every yeah. night because the, you know, there's so many things that aren't, you've got a different audience and yeah. the audience has a huge effect. Yeah. So if you're not prepared to respond to little things that are different. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, somebody changes the blocking by accident. Yeah. And you continue to do what you were doing before and it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, it, so, yeah. no, I love those little things that... Yeah. That, I mean, it's it's the difference if you, you know, live theater, it's the magic of live theater. It will never be that way again. Yeah. It will never be exactly that way. Yeah. And if in, in film, you do it once, you put it together... It's always going to be that way, but the the magical thing about theater is that it is yeah. live and people are fallible and things happen and things change. And well, because that that's fun too is uh, when something does go wrong, how quickly experienced actors can fix it. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's always it's always fun to watch something something go wrong on stage and to see. In some, you know, in in some shows, that might be the most riveting one. moment, is when people are reacting to that. Well, the other thing, of course, is uh, I have frequently done. I mean, I do something wrong in every show, and I, I'll come off stage and you know apologize to my scene partner, and he'll say, "Well, I didn't see you do anything wrong." Yeah. Um, your own mistakes are big in your own imagination. Absolutely. But most yeah. of the time, the audience doesn't see anything. Mm -hmm. And I was explaining this in the show I just finished. There were some good actors who are actually something else and mm -hmm. a lawyer and a yeah. they, they were terrific at this one of them I think it had not uh, had not had a, a lot of experience and he did something that uh, I wasn't on stage at the time and it was obviously a very very minor thing mm -hmm. transposed two lines or something yeah. and he was really beating himself up about yeah. it and I said listen you have to be aware that 99% of the time the audience has no idea what's going on mm -hmm. And very, very much at the time, the other people on stage didn't see you do anything wrong either. And you yeah. got to just... And I told him about... Um, uh, I met... I did one sort of late rehearsal session once with Stephen Wimatt, who was a friend of the director I was working with and came in to do a sort of last-minute publishing yeah. thing. And he told us about this thing that they, he said they do at Stratford, which is instant forgiveness. Mm. You make a mistake on stage. You start brooding on it. You're dead. You just you start a whole chain of things that mm -hmm. you do wrong. You have to say, okay, that was wrong, but you did it. Fine, forget it. Yep. Keep going. 
And I tried to explain that to this guy, and I don't think he was getting it. But, mm. um, but it's hard to do you because you're so exposed. Yeah. And, you know, when you're a little boy and you steal a cookie, you think everybody in the street knows that you just stole a cookie. Yes. Well, yeah. when you actually are standing in front of a crowd of people who are watching what you're doing, it's easy to think, oh, my God, everybody saw that. My yeah. career is over. And, yeah. and if you do that, you're, you just screw everything up. So you have to say, it. all right, I won't do it again. Now let's keep on with it. Yeah, no, you absolutely, you have to, you, you can't hold on to it or it does affect everything. Yeah. Um, just as we're as we're as we're finishing off, um, in terms of of, of a Christmas Carol, um, is there um, something that you? I mean, in, in, it's early days for rehearsal, mm-hmm. but is there something that is um, exciting you the most about it, frightening you the most about this character? What's what's about really got you going? Yeah. Um, I think the the thing I mentioned before about making the transition making him a believable character in the first place. And, you know, he's a pretty unappealing character at the yeah. beginning. Yeah. Um, making him a believable character in the first place, making a, a, a transition that is not too lumpy into another but, but much more pleasing believable mm. character. I think that's the, the big thing. Yeah. Um, and there are also a couple of places where the, um, the, the semi-hysterical moments are a little difficult to make believable. Sure. Uh, you know, how do you react the first time you see a ghost, you know, when you feel threatened by Yes, it? yeah. Um, and Dickens, of course, has... Dickens's sentimentality can be a bit of a bore sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. he... Actually, I don't think he is, he is as sentimental in this story in some ways as he is in some of his other no. works. But there are things that appeal very much to the Victorian sensibilities as we understand them yes. yeah. that don't go over so well with a modern audience. Yeah. And, and figuring out how to present those things, convey the emotional power without making them think, oh, yeah, you know, you're being melodramatic. I think yeah. that's going to be the technical yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's also a little bit preachy at points. Well, Dickens, oh, well, Dickens yeah, is absolutely, absolutely, absolutely preachy. Absolutely. He's, definitely, he's definitely, he definitely wears his agenda on his yeah. sleeve in, in this particular yeah. book. And I, I'm quite happy putting myself behind that agenda. Mm-hmm. Um if it, I think in some ways the difficult part of this for me is going to be this Scrooge at the beginning um, because in some ways he's pretty unpleasant without being provoked. Yeah. Without really being provoked. I mean, he, he speak, the way he speaks to some of the characters who, who simply don't happen to agree with him about something, he, he has, there's a real streak of nastiness in it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm quite capable of being nasty, but I'm not usually nasty to people who haven't done any done me an injury. Yeah, yeah. So I find that a bit unnatural. Um, but yeah, I think it's the, even though the arc of the character is a is a very clear and obvious one, I think it's going to be a tricky one to follow convincingly. Mm. Mm. Um, but I'm really I'm looking forward to it. I mean, there's so many talented people in this. A number of them I have never worked with before, but some of them I have, and I yeah. I know how much great stuff there is to work with. Yes. Uh, in, just in the talent. Awesome. Well, Thomas, thank you so much. Well, thank you.
This has been a Homebody Productions production.